0: There's something new on Airs L.A. every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. January 30. On this date in radio history in the year 1933, the Lone Ranger debuts on Detroit radio. With the stirring notes of the William Tell overture, and a shout of, hi silver, away! The Lone Ranger debuts on Detroit's WXYZ radio station. The creation of station owner George Trendle and writer Fran Stryker, the masked rider of the plains, becomes one of the most popular and enduring Western heroes of the 20th century. Joined by his trusty steed, Silver, and Native American scout, Tonto, The Lone Ranger battled Western outlaws and Native Americans. Neither Trandall nor Stryker had any connections to or experience with the Cowboys, the Native Americans and pioneers of the real West, but that mattered little to them. The men simply wanted to create an American version of the masked swashbuckler made popular by the silent movie actor Douglas Fairbanks in The Mark of Zorro, arming their hero with a revolver rather than a sword. Historical authenticity was far less important to the men than fidelity to the strict code of conduct they established for their character. The Lone Ranger never smoked, swore, or drank alcohol. He used grammatically correct speech, free of slang, and, most important, he never shot to kill. More offensive to modern historical and ethnic sensibilities was the scout Tonto, who spoke in a comical Native American patois totally unrelated to any authentic indigenous dialect. Historical accuracy notwithstanding, the radio program was an instant hit. Children liked the steady steam of action, and parents approved of the good moral example offered by the upstanding masked man. Soon picked up for national broadcast over the Mutual Radio Network, over 20 million Americans were tuning in the Lone Ranger three times a week by 1939. In an early example of the power of marketing tie-ins, the producers also licensed the manufacture of a vast array of related products, including Lone Ranger guns, costumes, books, and a popular comic strip. The Lone Ranger made a seemingly effortless transition from radio to motion pictures and television. The televised version of The Lone Ranger, starring Clayton Moore as The Masked Man, became ABC's first big hit in the early 1950s. Remaining on the air until after 1957, the program helped define the golden age of the TV Western and inspired dozens of imitators like The Range Rider, The Roy Rogers Show, and The Adventures of Wild Bill Hickok. January 31. On this date in fast food history in the year 1990, the first McDonald's opens in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union's first McDonald's fast food restaurant opens in Moscow. Throngs of people line up to pay the equivalent of several days' wages for Big Macs, shakes, and french fries. The appearance of this notorious symbol of capitalism and the enthusiastic reception it received from the Russian people were signs that times were changing in the Soviet Union. An American journalist on the scene reported the customers seemed most amazed at the simple sight of polite shop workers in this nation of commercial boorishness. A Soviet journalist had a more practical opinion, stating that the restaurant was the expression of America's rationalism and pragmatism toward food. He also noted that the contrast with our own unrealized pretensions is both sad and challenging. For the average Russian customer, however, visiting the restaurant was less a political statement than an opportunity to enjoy a small pleasure in a country still reeling from disastrous economic problems and internal political turmoil. The arrival of McDonald's in Moscow was a small but certain sign that change was on the horizon. In fact, Less than two years later, the Soviet Union ceased to exist as a nation, Mikhail Gorbachev resigned as leader of the country, and various Soviet republics proclaimed their independence. As the American newsman reported, the first Russian McDonald's customers had seen the future, and it works, at least as far as their digestive tract. February 1. On this date in literary history in the year 1884, The Oxford Dictionary Debuts February 1, 1884. The first portion, or fascicle, of the Oxford English Dictionary, OED, considered the most comprehensive and accurate dictionary of the English language is published. Today, the OED is the definitive authority on the meaning, pronunciation, and history of over half a million English words, past and present. Plans for the dictionary began in 1857 when members of London's Philological Society, who believed there were no up-to-date, error-free English dictionaries available, decided to produce one that would cover all vocabulary and the Anglo-Saxon period, 1150 A.D. to the present. Conceived as a four-volume, 6,400-page work, it was estimated the project would take ten years to finish. In fact, it took over 40 years until the 125th and final vesicle was published in April 1928 and the full dictionary was complete at over 400,000 words and phrases in 10 volumes and published under the title A New English Dictionary on Historical Principles. Unlike most English dictionaries, which only list present-day common meanings, The OED provides a detailed chronological history for every word and phrase, citing quotations from a wide range of sources, including classic literature and cookbooks. The OED is famous for its lengthy cross references and etymologies. The verb set merits the OED's longest entry, at approximately 60,000 words and detailing over 430 uses. No sooner was the OED finished, Then editors began updating it. A supplement containing new entries and revisions was published in 1933, and the original dictionary was reprinted in 12 volumes and officially renamed the Oxford English Dictionary. Between 1972 and 1986, an updated four volume supplement was published with new terms from the continually evolving English language, plus more words and phrases from North America, Australia, the Caribbean, New Zealand. South Africa, and South Asia. In 1984, Oxford University Press embarked on a five-year, multi-million-dollar project to create an electronic version of the dictionary. The effort required 120 people just to type the pages from the print edition to the 50 proofreaders to check their work. The online version of the dictionary has been active since 2000. At a whopping 20 volumes weighing over 137 pounds, it would reportedly take one person 120 years to type all 59 million words in the OED. February 2. On this date, in literary history in the year 1882, James Joyce is born. Novelist James Joyce is born on this day in Dublin, Ireland, the eldest of 10 children. His father, a cheerful near do well will eventually go bankrupt. Joyce attended Catholic school and university college in Dublin. A brilliant scholar, he learned Dano-Norwegian in order to read the plays of Henrik Ibsen in the original. In college, he began a lifetime of literary rebellion, self-publishing an essay rejected by the school's literary magazine advisor. After graduation, Joyce moved to Paris. He planned to become a doctor to support himself while writing, but soon gave up his medical studies. He returned to Dublin to visit his mother's deathbed and remained to teach school and work odd jobs. On June 16, 1904, he met Nora Barnacle, a lively, uneducated woman with whom he fell in love. He convinced Nora to return to Europe with him. The couple settled in Trieste, where they had two children, and then in Zurich. Joyce struggled with serious eye problems, undergoing 25 operations for various troubles between 1917 and 1930. In 1914, he published The Dubliners. The following year, his novel, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, brought him fame and won him several wealthy patrons, including Edith Rockefeller. In 1918, the American journal Little Review began to serialize Ulysses, Joyce's revolutionary stream-of-consciousness novel. However, the U.S. Post Office stopped the publication's distribution in December of that year on the grounds that the novel was obscene. Sylvia Beach, owner of the bookstore Shakespeare and Company in Paris, published the novel herself in 1922, but it was banned in the United Kingdom and in the United States until 1933. Joyce's last novel, Finnegan's Wake, was published in 1939, and Joyce died two years later. February 3. On this date in Hispanic history in the year 2005, Gonzalez becomes the first Hispanic U.S. Attorney General. On February 3, 2005, Alberto Gonzalez wins Senate confirmation as the nation's first Hispanic Attorney General despite protests over his record on torture the Senate approved his nomination on a largely party-line vote of 60 to 36, reflecting a split between Republicans and Democrats over whether the administration's counterterrorism policies had led to the abuse of prisoners in Iraq and elsewhere. Shortly after the Senate vote, Vice President Dick Cheney swore in Gonzalez as Attorney General in a small ceremony in the Roosevelt Room at the White House. President Bush, who was traveling, called to congratulate him. Gonzales was born in 1955 in San Antonio, Texas, the son of migrant workers, and grew up in a small, crowded home in Houston without hot water or a telephone. He joined the U.S. Air Force in 1973 after graduating high school. Following a few years of service, Gonzales attended the U.S. Air Force Academy. After leaving the military, Gonzales attended Rice University and Harvard Law School before Bush. Then-governor of Texas picked him in 1995 to serve as the general counsel in Austin, and in 2001 brought him to Washington as his White House counsel. In this new role, Gonzalez championed an extension of the USA Patriot Act. After Gonzalez became attorney general, he faced scrutiny regarding some of his actions, most notably the firing of several U.S. attorneys and his defense of Bush's domestic eavesdropping program. The firings became the subject of a Senate Judiciary Committee in 2007. Concerns about the veracity of some of his statements, as well as his general competency, also began to surface. Democrats began calling for his resignation and for more investigations, but President Bush defended his appointee, saying that Gonzalez was an honest, honorable man in whom I have confidence, according to an Associated Press report. A few months later, however, Gonzalez decided to step down. On August 27, he gave a brief statement announcing his resignation effective September 17, stating that it has been one of my greatest privileges to lead the Department of Justice. He gave no explanation for his departure. In his resignation letter, Gonzales simply said that this is the right time for my family and I to begin a new chapter in our lives. February 4. On this date, in World Wide Web history, in the year 2004, Facebook Launches. A Harvard sophomore named Mark Zuckerberg launches the Facebook, a social media website he had built in order to connect Harvard students with one another. By the next day, over a thousand people had registered, and that was only the beginning. Now known simply as Facebook, the site quickly ballooned into one of the most significant social media companies in history. Today, Facebook is one of the most valuable companies in the world with over 2 billion monthly active users. The origins of Facebook have been highly scrutinized, including the critically acclaimed 2010 film The Social Network, but the exact source of the idea remains unclear. What is obvious is that Zuckerberg had twin gifts for coding and causing a stir, both of which served him well at Harvard. The previous year, he had become a campus celebrity by creating Facemash, a website where students could vote on which of the two randomly selected Harvard women was more attractive and quickly running afoul of both the administration and several women's groups. FaceMash was short-lived but popular, leading Zuckerberg to consider the value of creating a campus-wide social network. Over the course of his sophomore year, Zuckerberg built what would become Facebook. When it launched on February 4, he and his roommates were glued to their screens, watching as an estimated 1,200 to 1,500 of their fellow students signed up for their site within the first 24 hours of existence. From there, Facebook expanded rapidly, moving to other Boston-area schools and the rest of the Ivy League that spring. By the end of the year, the site had one million users. Angel investor Peter Thiel had invested half a million dollars, and Zuckerberg had left Harvard to run Facebook from its new headquarters in California. From there, Facebook spread across the world, becoming not only an incredibly valuable company, but also one of the most important institutions of the early 21st century the go-to social media site for a generation of internet users, and one which was readily adopted by older users as it transformed from exclusive to universal, Facebook was one of the major forces that brought the internet into the highly participatory phase full of user-generated content, sometimes referred to as Web 2.0. It also remained controversial, in addition to allowing misinformation and fake accounts to proliferate. Facebook has drawn criticism both for selling its users' data and for failing to adequately protect it. Nonetheless, Facebook continues to dominate the social media market, generating by far the most ad revenue and maintaining over half of their total market share. February 5. On this date in motion picture history in the year 1919, United Artists is created. Hollywood heavyweights Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks and D. W. Griffith joined forces to create their own film studio, which they called the United Artists Corporation. United Artists quickly gained prestige in Hollywood thanks to the success of the films of its stars, notably Chaplin's The Gold Rush in 1925, as well as the work of actors such as Buster Keaton, Rudolph Valentino, and Gloria Swanson. Chaplin directed United Artists films as well as acted in them, and Pickford concentrated on producing after she retired from acting in the 1930s. With the rise of sound during the decade, United Artists was helped by the talents and bankrolls of veteran producers like Joseph Schenck, Samuel Goldwyn, Howard Hughes, and Alexander Korda. The corporation began to struggle financially in the 1940s, however, and in 1951, the production studio was sold, and United Artists became only a financing and distributing facility. By the 1950s, all of the original partners had sold their shares of the company, but UA had begun to thrive again, releasing such films as The African Queen in 1951, High Noon in 1952, Witness for the Prosecution in 1957, Some Like It Hot in 1959, The Apartment, and The Magnificent Seven, both in 1960 and West Side Story in 1961. In addition, the company was responsible for the James Bond and Pink Panther film franchises. UA went public in 1957 and became a subsidiary of the Transamerica Corporation a decade later. UA Films garnered a slew of Best Picture Academy Awards over the course of the 1970s. For Midnight Cowboy in 1969, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, Rocky in 1976, and Annie Hall in 1977. Soon after that, however, five top executives left the company in a disagreement and formed the Warner Brothers-backed Orion Pictures. U.A. sustained an even more devastating blow in 1980 when it released the big budget flop, Heaven's Gate, directed by Michael Cimino. Two years in the making and way over budget, the film earned less than $4 million at the U.S. box office. After that debacle, UA struggled throughout the 1980s. In 1981, MGM bought the company, merging it in 1983 to become MGM UA Entertainment. In a highlight of those relatively dark years, UA did release another Best Picture winner, Rain Man, in 1988. In 1992, the French bank Credit Lyonnais acquired the corporation and changed its name back to Metro-Golden-Mayer, Inc., abandoning the United Artists' name altogether. The James Bond and Pink Panther franchises were revived, with varying degrees of success. MGM changed hands and was reorganized repeatedly over the next decade and a half, during which UA was repositioned as a boutique producer of smaller so-called art house films, such as Bowling for Columbine in 2002, Hotel Arwanda in 2005, and Capote in 2006. In November of 2006, MGM gave the actor-producer Tom Cruise, star of Rain Man, and his production partner Paula Wagner control over the United Artists' production slate, announcing the decision was a reintroduction of the UA brand in the spirit of its founders. Cruise and Wagner whose former deal with Paramount Pictures ended amid reported acrimony earlier in 2006, released their first co-production with UA, Lions for Lambs, in 2007. Thereafter, the UA brand was subsumed into MGM and revived in 2018 as United Artists Digital Studios. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for January 30 through February 5. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.